In 2017, director Edgar Wright and star Ansel Elgort gave the world a dynamic and thrilling heist movie that drives you to the edge of your seat. In 2022, we returned to the space-side region of Scotland to try yet another single malt. The film is Baby Driver. The whiskey is Spayburn 10. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm like still jazzed from watching this movie earlier today, Bob. One of my favorite things about you, Brad. Actually, can you tell the people your name? Because you still. Oh, I'm I'm Brad G. I'm Brad G. One of my favorite things about you is that you just unironically use the word jazzed. (laughs) <laughs> like, I, I like you, there's so many words you could use, like, you know, like I, I'm <laughs> pumped up, I'm psyched, I'm jacked. No, jazzed. <laughs> it's a great word, man. <laughs> it really is. You're bringing it back single handedly. Yeah. And uh, let's be really honest. My adrenaline was pumping. I was like taking my one and a half year old for a walk afterwards. And I was like almost like run walking. My adrenaline was like still <laughs> pumping from having watched it. I had a similar experience watching this movie. Oh, I I should say, this week we're reviewing Baby Driver, Edgar Wright's 2017 masterpiece. And I had a very similar experience watching this film to the experience I had watching Top Gun Maverick recently. Yes. Driving home after Top Gun Maverick, I was like, I should go 95 miles an hour in my car. (laughs) (laughs) I literally was like going around one of the like roundabout entrances on ramps onto the highway hitting like 60 on the curve part of it and Haley was like honey you're not Tom Cruise and I was like but I could be but we're the same height (laughs) we are the same height he is also five foot six he sure is man which is crazy I've stood next to you I don't think I could take Tom Cruise quite as seriously in real life being that short I all I think of when I think of Tom Cruise's height is the family guy version of Tom Cruise which is just the best thing in the world. Oh, man. We, we're like three minutes in and we're already referencing Family Guy. It's going to be one of those episodes today as we look <laughs> at Baby Driver. Now, Brad, you and I have known each other for a while, but Baby Driver is one of my fondest movie-going memories of all time. And I shared Aww. it with you. And it's one of our first movies that we shared together because we went to Chicago with a small group of our friends to celebrate the bachelor party of our friend Mike Giles. And one evening we were like trying to find something to do in the Chicagoland area and we didn't want to go back downtown. So we said, hey, let's all go see a movie. We walked into this theater, couldn't figure out what to watch, decided to leave. And then 20 minutes later, wanted to go to the movies again. (laughs) So we drove like to the outskirts of Chicago and went Mm -hmm. to this tiny mom and pop theater to see Baby Driver. Yeah. And it was it was one of those moments where like. I had become very cynical about movies. Uh, I was cynical about a lot of things in my life at that point. And I remember seeing a preview for Baby Driver like months beforehand. And I remember thinking to myself as I watched the preview, this movie is like the epitome of what is wrong with Hollywood nowadays. 
Like, I don't know what it was about the trailer. I've never watched it again since. But I just remember being like, this is why Hollywood is failing. And so going into it, you know, it's Mike's bachelor party where, you know, he was like wanting to see it. So I was like, yeah, sure. Like, uh, yeah, let's go watch it. On the inside, I was like, man, F this. Like, I am not interested in this movie. And I think that that helped because what we walked away from was just one of the coolest movies I've ever seen in my life. Brad, I don't know if I'm going to give this movie a 10 out of 10, but I've probably spent more time wondering if this deserves a 10 out of 10 than any other movie we've done on this show, because (laughs) everything about this movie works. It's just it. The rhythm of this film is perfect. Even at at points where you think it's going to kind of start to drag a little bit, something happens to liven things back up. It's just like an expertly constructed movie. And I hate to use the car metaphors, but like everything about this movie, it, it, just, it clicks and it fires on all cylinders the whole way through the movie. Yeah, it literally keeps you at the edge of your seat. Hey, there it is. Yeah, we, we need to just get as many of those out of the way like right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, this movie, th- there's so much beauty in the way Edgar Wright makes a movie. And from from what I have heard, he's he's not like the most chill director to ever work with. But from what I've heard, he's a he's a pretty cool director. Like he's not super anal about everything, but he does have a very specific vision and direction and an idea of what he wants. And he accomplishes it in just such masterful ways. All right. I think it's time for us to move into Brad Explains, America's favorite segment But as we get into that, we do want to remind you about our Patreon, patreon.com slash film whiskey. If you go to that site, you'll find that you can support our podcast at three different tiers, a three, a five and a seven dollar a month tier. At each tier, you get tons of bonus perks, especially at that seven dollar tier. But at all three tiers, you get access to a special discord server that Brad and I are on every single day talking to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation. So please check us out at patreon.com slash film whiskey. Brad, it's time for this segment. Brad explains where you break down the plot of the movie that you have just seen often for the first time. Brad, have you watched this movie since we saw it together five years ago? Uh, Yeah, this is my third time watching it. At, su- at some point, I made my wife sit down and watch it because I thought she would enjoy it. She wasn't as big of a fan. She used the words, that was a really sad movie. And huh. I was like, all right, yeah, huh. it, I guess it kind of was. People died. I have been trying to get my wife to watch this movie for like four and a half years now. And uh, it just has not happened. Carrie won't watch this movie? I don't know if it's that she won't watch it, but I always try to give her options. So I'll like, you know, yeah. hold up three Blu-rays and be like, pick what you want to watch. And she's she's never picked Baby Driver. Mm. Bums me out, dude. I'm in the same boat as you. You need to just walk up and like put three different copies of Baby Driver in three different movies <laughs> and then just put it in and be like, well, don't know what happened, babe. Guess we'll just watch this. Just make a cover that makes it look like it's a Jane Austen adaptation or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> just pull out the Pride and Prejudice one and put it in the Baby Driver. All right, Brad, we have 60 seconds on the clock. Can you break down the plot of Baby Driver? Baby Driver is about a young man who has been coerced into working for a a crime lord. 
Underlord? Uh, who knows what he is? Uh, he's Kevin Spacey, and we were not going to say his name anymore at all in this podcast. He is uh, persona non grata, if you will. Uh, yeah, so he's working for this crime boss, and he is a phenomenal getaway driver, and he's paying off his debt. In the midst of doing this, he finds himself going to a diner uh, where his mom worked at, and he finds a girlfriend there, a girl that he's very attracted to. Ten seconds. Uh, and his life comes into issue. Man, this is a f- this is a bad Brad Explains. Yeah, it is. And time. All right. We're not going to offer any more explanation about this movie. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> he, he's a driver and he likes a girl. There you go. And I, I think that's all you really need to know. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to try to summarize this because I can't let our listeners just hang in the air <laughs> with that. Yeah, yeah, you can, Bob. Just let it. All just right. Leave fine. It. OK, so baby driver. <laughs> We've been doing a miniseries on Edgar Wright films. This is the third and final one in this miniseries. We looked at Shaun of the Dead. Last week, we looked at Scott Pilgrim. And now we're looking at Baby Driver. And I said last week that on the surface, it seems like Scott Pilgrim may be kind of the outlier there because it's stylized in such a very different way. But that I believed that Baby Driver was actually the outlier when you when you look at the themes that are usually kind of underlying Edgar Wright's movies. And it's not to say that this movie is like devoid of anything under the surface. I think they do a good job of trying to give you some sympathy for the character of Baby and his backstory. But ultimately, Brad, this is this is pretty much a surface level movie and there's nothing wrong with mm-hmm. that. It just works like gangbusters. But I would I do think that like among <laughs> Edgar Wright's filmography that we've seen, this is definitely the outlier. I love that you're giving me crap about using the word jazzed. <laughs> And then you you bust out gangbusters. Everybody's going to see the movies in droves. I was just going to say, welcome to this week's episode of Old Timey 1930s, the podcast. <laughs> You'll never take me alive, copper. Uh, that could be the subtitle of this movie. It's true. <laughs> Dude, this movie is just fun and witty and just rhythmic and beautiful. And I don't even care what we talk about first. Where where do you want to go? Well, no, why don't you touch on what I was just saying about Edgar Wright and this being the outlier? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because he, he still has the, the basic setup of like, here's a young man finding himself in the world, right? And this time his coming of age is to win a girl, which is, I don't know, is that like the classic coming of age story like i want to grow up so i can win this girl's affections yeah that's a i mean yeah that's a nice template for one that's for sure yeah like that's a pretty simple one and it works here i think lily james is freaking spectacular uh in the limited role that she's given uh the moment where she's pouring coffee and her hand is just shaking and you can like feel the terror in her uh it it really grounds the movie in a lot of ways But I I think for Edgar Wright himself as a director, it feels like simultaneously the coalescing of everything he has tried to do as a director. And yet at the same time, a movement away from some of the things that made him Edgar Wright in previous films. Yeah, I think that's for sure. And one of the ways that I noticed it in this movie, I texted this to you like halfway through watching it, is that this is like a Hollywood movie with a capital H. The way that Shaun of the Dead, you know, mimicked a lot of American independent cinema, 
but still felt very British. This is like, hey, we're going to bring this guy over to Hollywood. We're going to give him all the resources in the world. And he's going to make his a movie that's undeniably his, but it's the most polished, slick version of a movie that he could possibly make. And again, I, I, I sound like I'm I'm like crapping on this movie. And that's not it at all, because I think this is like a nearly perfect version of an Edgar Wright movie. But it just it, it reminded me of like us watching Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs versus us watching Django Unchained or Inglorious mm. Bastards. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. w- with with 10 years of time in between, I guess it was 13 years between Shaun of the Dead and this movie. You can tell that he's grown a little bit as a filmmaker, but he's also learned like how to use those trademark kind of like whoosh and and quick pans that he does and where to place them in the movie. And this movie just flows so seamlessly, even compared to a movie like Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, the the cinematography in this movie is stunningly just beautiful. Like the way he films a car chase is the most exciting car chase I think I've ever seen in a movie. Like there's a lot of great car chase scenes in in cinematic history, but man, oh man, does he know what he's doing? There were certain moments of the film where it felt like they took the final chase scene in charade, you know, where they're like cutting Mm -hmm. between Mm -hmm. the different characters who are running as the camera whips past the columns. It felt like they were doing that at moments, but with cars going 80, 90 miles an hour in downtown Atlanta. For sure. it's it's just bonkers cool. What do you think it is that makes movies like this so cool? I mean, there's a long line, a long tradition of car chase movies. And I can't say that every car chase movie appeals to me. But, you know, in the 60s, there's the classic Steve McQueen movie Bullet. I mean, mm-hmm. like we've seen some good chase movies even on this show. And I brought up Top Gun Maverick a minute ago. Like, what is it about dudes in machines that go fast that just make a movie so awesome? That's like what the entire first Top Gun like lived on was just like, hey, here's some planes that go really fast and do cool things. And like the second one builds on that and and makes an even better movie. But there's just something in the human soul, and I wouldn't even say that it's necessarily a male-dominated thing, although I think guys in general would enjoy it more. There's just something about watching humans be phenomenal at something that is captivating. Mm. And when they're phenomenal at things that you just instinctively know take a lot of talent and a lot of practice and skill. Like, there's a reason you watch soccer or football or something, and, like, it's almost artistic what they're able to do, you know? You you watch LeBron driving down the lane, and you can watch him do it a billion times like he's done in his career, and yet there's still something beautiful about him rising up above everyone else and slamming that basketball home. And the reason is because we all just instinctively know the amount of time and effort and energy and and to to produce that product. And so when you're watching that, it's a combination of the people who made these cars put all this time and energy and effort and attention into it. And and the people who learned how to drive cars in this way have taken it beyond anything I as an average viewer of this movie could do with a car. And so watching them do all that and then the way Edgar Wright cuts it all together and the the music that he puts to it 
I'm just, dude, I'm just getting jazzed thinking about it. <laughs> You're getting jazzed again, man. <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot, especially with a movie like this. And I think that there is, whether you know it or not, there's an appreciation of filmmaking that goes on with a movie that is this logistically hard to pull off. Like a a chase sequence is much, 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 much harder than anyone realizes. And I think when you've seen a bad one on screen, you start to realize how hard it is to do a good one because there's really two ways that you can go off the rails. You could make it seem too uh, like static. Like if you watch like real old TV shows where there's a car chase, they don't have the budget to really like mount the camera on the cars or do a lot of different locations. And so you'll just often find like, the camera's at the bottom of a hill and you watch the one car zoom past and then they cut to the exact same shot, but like starting at the first point and you see the second car come down the hill and there's 50 of those shots strung together and that's your car chase. Mm-hmm. And the other way is like the uh, attention deficit way, which is too many quick cuts where you don't get a sense of the geography. Everything is just incoherent. This movie really beautifully finds the middle ground between those two where you are like... You may not know the layout of Atlanta, Georgia, but you understand what direction every car is facing. You understand when baby is like pulling this incredible drift into a U-turn and the cops can't make the turn and they're crashing into things. And it never seems chaotic, even at the moments of the film where the characters are experiencing a chaotic moment. You as the viewer are always aware uh, like subconsciously that there is like a master behind the camera putting this stuff together. Yeah. The, the way he orchestrates these chase scenes and, and there's like so much action going on at once and your brain is struggling to keep up with everything that's happening. And I, I think a good scene that illustrates this is when they're doing the final heist of the movie and he drives around the back and he's sitting in the car and in your brain, you know, the plan, you know, what uh, Buddy and Darling are doing, you know, what Bats is doing. And you see him sitting back there and he he shakes his head no to try and keep that lady from going into the bank. And she gets the, the cop to come out and like the way he moves from that like little level of tension to Jamie Foxx holding a gun to his head, telling him to drive, and then and then baby like crashing the car and murdering <laughs> Jamie Foxx. Like the the way he builds the tension in that scene and he tells you everything that's supposed to happen and then shows how it all goes wrong. And then after that, it leads into this, I don't know, like 10 minute long chase scene of the cops running after him, him driving away. It, it's epic. I like. I don't know if there's another word to describe it. This movie is just epic. This is one of those movies, and this is not a reflection at all of what you've been saying so far, but it's one of those movies where, as I'm watching it, I think to myself, Brad and I could probably talk about this movie for two hours on end, and then we actually get behind the microphone, and I find that we just say the same three things over and over and over. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, how many times can you just say, this movie is awesome? Because yeah. like that gets stale really fast. But honestly, it's just one of the most purely entertaining films I've seen in the last 10 years, probably. You know, it's yeah. right up there in a similar way with like a Mad Max Fury Road, where it's this brilliantly constructed action movie that is a singular vision of its director. 
And I told you this right before we hit record. I don't know if I would consider this an action movie. Like it doesn't have those big hallmarks of when you think, you know, when you used to browse the video store and you'd see action and it was like 50 year old <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger in collateral damage or judge dread. Yeah. Like any of those kind of movies, <laughs> it has some great chase sequences and there's like one explosion in the movie and that's pretty much it. But it's the way that the action punctuates the story that really does make it one of the most perfectly constructed action movies I've ever seen. Well, let's let's move on then from talking about how just freaking amazing this movie is and uh, talk some specifics. I, I want to hear your thoughts on the actors in this movie. Where, where, where do you want to start, Bob? Well, uh, we're going to have to wade through the minefield that is uh, <laughs> cancellation corner here. And let's just talk about the two problematic people now. And again, we mm-hmm. we've talked about Kevin Spacey on this show before. Um, we've actually kind of steered away from doing more Kevin Spacey films on the podcast because as more details of his story have emerged, uh, it's just, it's really hard to talk about, oh, he's so good in this movie, knowing what's going on off camera. And, you know, for the purposes of this show, we are going to stay constrained to the, to what we saw in the movie and the performances of the actors. But, you know, we do acknowledge what's what's going on with both of these two very problematic actors. Uh, we're de- we don't condone anything that they may or may not have been doing off camera. And I, it sucks that we have to make that disclaimer, but it's it's necessary, I think, Brad. Yeah, I mean, in the end, every single actor is a human being and some of them really suck as human beings. Yeah. And we can we can observe the fact that like, yeah, they're a great actor, but a terrible human being. Mm. Uh, and I, I think it's okay to hold those two things in tension and recognize that like the very rare times we do a Kevin Spacey movie, we're probably going to give this disclaimer every time to say, Hey, like we're not down with what he does. We're not down with the, the type of person he has chosen to be, but, uh, sure. Yeah. He did a great job in this movie. Uh, I will say though, I thought he was like, just fine in this. Like he he was just kind of being a chill Kevin Spacey role. Yeah, if we're going to start with Spacey, we might as well just kind of knock that out now. I'm with you. I think that his character is purposely a little bit schlubby. Like they don't dress him in really nicely fitting clothes and he looks a little overweight and his hair is not perfectly, you know, quaffed. And it's like it's really interesting because he's supposed to be this guy that's like a a major uh, kind of underground crime lord. And you imagine he has like vast sums of wealth, but, you know, he's wearing loose fitting clothing. And and I actually Mm -hmm. really love that decision by the director. And Spacey acts it really well. He's not going over the top. He's he has some like clever little turns of phrase that are maybe not the most well-written lines I've ever heard and don't necessarily go with the character that much. But I love that he's kind of the low energy guy in the room because there are so Mm -hmm. many personalities in that room at all times that I think adding another one, another quirky character to this bunch would probably be one too many. So it's nice (laughs) that they used that character to kind of keep things grounded. Yeah, it's funny that you say low energy because on first glance, it feels like uh, Baby is kind of the low energy person in the room. But when you really watch him, even though he barely says a word when he's in the planning stages of the heists, he has this nervous energy. His knee is always moving. He's always like kind of bopping his head to whatever music he's listening to. And he really does bring this nervous energy to the room that I don't know. I don't know if I would have 
that would have clicked for me until you said it, Bob, that, yeah, like Spacey is the low energy person in the room. There's a great shot. One of my favorite shots in the whole movie, right at the beginning of the film, when you're first introduced to the crew that pulls off the first heist and they go back to the rendezvous and Spacey is doling out the money and you get an idea of who John Hamm and Asa Gonzalez are and that they're, you know, they're making out in the corner. You've got John Bernthal in there for like a hot second. And he's like the crazy hyper one that Jamie Foxx takes his place in terms of being his like spiritual cousin in that movie. And then you've got uh baby who's just essentially a mute and they're all riding down the elevator together. <laughs> and the shot is like from the point of view of the, uh, the inside elevator doors. And so you've got Spacey right in the middle and you've got all the guys, you know, in the crew behind him. And Spacey just looks like a beaten down dad. And he yep. and halfway through the ride down the <laughs> elevator, he just breathes in this heavy sigh. And you're just like, oh, yeah, man, I get exactly what you're going for here. <laughs> he easily has like five children he's going home <laughs> yeah, to. Exactly. <laughs> that are all under the age of six somehow. Well, and that's the vibe that, that they're going for here is that he's basically babysitting all these ridiculous personalities and trying to get them to pull something off without everyone dying all the time. And I think the unique thing about his character is that by the end of the film, you realize like, he puts on this hard persona, but he, in the tiniest way possible, does kind of care about Baby. Mm -hmm. And I like that they don't make it this, like, massive gesture of him, like, really going over the top for him. It's just kind of this casual, like, yep, I was in love once. Yeah. And then, boom, like, there's no getting out of the situation, so I might as well tell them to run. Right. Like, it's it's just a perfect way to play his character. Brad, since we're talking about the fact that Kevin Spacey is persona non grata, if you had to replace him with someone in this movie and because and I don't usually ask this question about replacing actors, but given who we're talking about, I thought it was fair game. And also yeah. because he is kind of the low energy one in the bunch, I don't think Spacey gives a bad performance at all. In fact, I think it's quietly one of the best performances in the movie because it's hard to pull that off. But I also think that you could probably slot a couple different actors in here and it would work just as well. I don't know if he would be good. It, the role would change a lot. But if he was able to play low energy, I would love to see Jack Nicholson in that role. Oh, interesting. See, I feel like Jack has too much of a too much of a persona. You know what I mean? Like even when he's yeah. being low energy, he's still Jack. Yep. I was thinking for a while, maybe Tom Hanks, but even that's like, there's too much of a movie star persona that gets carried into the movie. Mm-hmm. You know who uh, this- Danny, Danny DeVito, maybe? <laughs> Danny DeVito, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know who I honestly think would be really good, though? And, and it's, it's almost like this part was written with this actor in mind, and they just chose Spacey instead, but like Tommy Lee Jones- I think, you know, when you yeah. think about his character in The Fugitive or in No Country for Old Men, it's like that's this character. And he yeah. has that kind of wry, sardonic quality to him, too. I think this would be a really good Tommy Lee Jones performance. Yeah, I think that's a winner, man. Good call. Hey, and he thanks. also isn't, as far as we know, an evil human being. So <laughs> you know, it's a double win. Win-win. Yeah. <laughs> okay, how about Ansel Elgort, the star of this movie? I... 
I really liked Ansel Elgort as an up and coming actor. And it's a bummer to hear the allegations that have come out against him. And, uh, you know, last year he was in West Side Story and was not a fixture on the promotional circuit for that movie at all. And actually was caught quite a lot of flack for that film as being like the worst part of it. I actually really liked what he did in that movie. But he's doing something kind of similar here where he is responsible for playing a character, like you said, that seems really low energy on the surface and having to find ways to infuse energy under the surface. And I really do think he does a great job in this movie. Yeah, I think that the character of Joe, um, the the older deaf man that he cares for, is the most important part of grounding him. That when he rushes back into the apartment to find Joe, you can feel the panic in his soul, like the the desperation that he has in that moment is communicated so beautifully by what Elgort does in that moment. And so I think it's moments like that that he really shines and it gives layers to his performance throughout the rest of the film. I also think that he does a phenomenal job of being like an older teenage guy who's just really attracted to a girl and does not know how to to like flirt with her or talk to her. He's just totally tongue-tied and it's adorable and like I just thought that the the chemistry between him and Lily James, which you know they don't have a ton of time on screen together, was just Really, it was just really beautiful, and I really liked it. Yeah, they're super charming. They do have great chemistry. Before we go to break, I want to keep talking just a little bit about Ansel Elgort, and then we can get to the rest of the cast in the second half of the episode. But recently, I watched the original Top Gun before I went and saw Top Gun Maverick, and I had never seen it before, Brad. Man. Yeah, and I loved it. It was was a really great movie. Tom Cruise was 24 years old when he starred in that Mm. movie. Man, And then a year later, he goes and he makes a movie with Martin Scorsese called The Color of Money, which is a sequel to the 1961 movie The Hustler with Paul Newman. Ooh, and I've, heard, I've heard of that movie. Great movie. And in watching both of those movies back to back, they're both really great hallmarks of early Cruise, where he is like his charm and his cockiness are what he's like banking on. Mm-hmm. But even then. The cool thing about watching those movies back to back in like a two day span was finding the little subtle ways that the character in The Color of Money is played versus, you know, uh, Maverick in Top Gun, because they're both cocky. They're both, you know, overly charming guys. But one of them has a much more like dark heart behind it. And Cruz does such a good job of finding really subtle ways to portray that. And similarly, like Ansel Elgort in this movie is really, really similar to the Ansel Elgort you see in West Side Story playing Tony. He's quiet. He may not be the brightest guy, uh, you know, and again, this movie has similarities (laughs) where like he's singing and dancing all over the place, too. Right. But I think it's it's so cool to see an actor play what seems like a pigeonholed role. And find really, really subtle ways of, you know, uh, shades of gray, I guess, or different shades to those performances. Yeah, man, I, I think that I will say not having seen the the new West Side Story, I think that he has a lot of nuance in his performance. And the way he talks to Jamie Foxx really brings it out. 
I think that Jamie being the spectacular actor that he is was like a perfect, uh, I don't it, it's like a Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, like the older actor who has won an Oscar showing the younger guy the ropes. And I, the scenes where Jamie and Ansel are together are just electric. And when he grabs Jamie Foxx's gun and holds him back from going up, you know, essentially to intimidate Lily James's character, I there's just so much tension in that moment. Mm-hmm. And Ansel has just this determined look in his eyes of like, there are very few things I will fight for, but this is one of them. All right, man. So we've talked about the two problematic actors in the movie, both of whom give really good performances here. When we come back from our break, we'll break down the rest of the cast and talk a little bit more about director Edgar Wright. But before we get there, Brad, it is time to drink some whiskey. What do you say we try this Spayburn 10? Man, I I love whiskeys from the Spay. So I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> for it, Bob. Film and Whiskey Nation, do you ever think about awards? Of course you do. You drink whiskey and watch movies, which means that you know that nothing is validated until a group of random people say, hey, we love what you're doing. The awesome thing about Doc Swinson's whiskey is that it isn't just some group of schlubs that are giving them awards. They have been winning attention from some of the most important whiskey experts that you can imagine. They've been voted best distillery in Washington state by the New York International Spirits Competition. They've been voted the best independent bottler by the Ascot Awards, as well as the best finished bourbon from the Ascot Awards for their La Menta Exploratory Cask. Their Exploratory Cask series is where they release some of the most fascinating and adventurous experiments. If you're ever checking out Doc's lineup and see a white label, there's a really good chance that that's the only time you'll see that bottle, so make sure you snatch it up. Doc Swinson's has been offering just phenomenal finished and blended whiskeys for quite some time now. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whiskey.com. All right, everybody. Today, we are going to be drinking Spayburn 10, a return to the Spayside region for us, Bob, that I'm really excited about. Yeah, me too, man. I've been kind of hit or miss on Spayside single malts. We liked some of the Aberlauers. I know we've tried a couple more since then. I, like The names are escaping me right now, but the Aberlauers were kind of up and down for me. I liked the higher uh, like ABV ones and the, then the lower ones. This one we're drinking today, the Spayburn 10, is a very popular space side, but it's only clocking in at 80 proof, Brad. So I'm already like, is this going to be uh, a low point in space side for me? Yeah, it, I mean, it might be, Bob. I will say, if you don't enjoy it, you'll be excited to find out uh, how much it would cost you to buy it in the state of Ohio. But we'll get to that later. Uh, right now, we're just going to say that this is a 10-year-aged single malt whiskey from the Spay region, uh, and it is aged in ex-American oak bourbon casks as well as ex-sherry casks. All right. So uh, we recently got some feedback from a listener that their favorite way to enjoy our whiskey reviews is when Brad comes in with notes and Bob drinks it live. And that's exactly what we're doing today. I have like literally had no exposure to this whiskey before this very moment. I'm opening it up now. I'm going to pour it out in my glass. Brad, I'm vamping a little bit. So can you <laughs> can you give me your nosing notes on this? Yeah, man. I, as I got into the nose here, I really liked it a lot. There, There's some creamsicle, kind of like a creamy orange vibe going on. 
Uh, you get a, a decent amount of that malted barley. And then at the back end, it it, it was almost like a sweet mint. Like, like, you know, the, uh, which gum brand is it? Is it Orbit that has like the sweet mint gum? Mm-hmm. It, it yep. kind of reminds me of that. And I really like it a lot. It, it's not incredibly complex, but there's a lot of nice flavors going on. I give it an eight out of 10, Bob. Yeah, I like this a lot. It reminds me a lot of English toffee on the nose, but mm-hmm. with like some sort of like a honey under like undergirding all that. It's much brighter than like a dark toffee note, but that's definitely there. I'm really digging this on the nose. I think I'm going to give it an eight out of 10. It has some really nice, light, fruity, almost Irish whiskey type notes mm-hmm. with a little bit of that scotch kind of funk and uh, and a little bit of a smoke on this, too. And then that really great toffee underneath it all. Pretty complex, Brad, for an only an 80 proof whiskey. So, yeah, I'm in an eight out of 10. Bob, the longer we do this, the more I really want to create like a soundboard. We're, so we're we're almost like a, a 90s radio station <laughs> that anytime you say funk, I just want to hit a button and be like, it's got the funk. And just like <laughs> just play like the Seinfeld bass under me for a hot yes. second. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, Bob, getting into the palette here, it's really light and airy. Uh, there's some orange zest going on with uh, a decent amount of honey. Um, and there's like a few kind of floral notes happening. The the mint kind of drops away and turns into this floral aroma on your on your tongue. Um, it definitely drops off a little bit from the nose, but still is a really enjoyable experience. I'll, I'll give it a seven out of ten on the taste. Oh, I like this a lot. It's okay. So I'll say this: it's a flawed whiskey, but I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it. Um. I don't know how to explain it. If I could like draw a map of the different zones of my tongue, (laughs) like if you could take your tongue and divide it into like nine regions, right? Like three in the front, three in the middle, three in the back. Are we doing like hunger game districts here? Yes. Yes. (laughs) This only hit the middle of my tongue the whole way back. I don't know how to explain it. Like I'm only tasting things on Mm -hmm. the middle of my tongue and it's really, really sweet. You get a little bit of alcohol like in the mid palate and then it kind of disappears again and gets almost watery towards the back end. But that's where you get just a wisp of smokiness. And then it's like black, black, black coffee. And it's Mm. really interesting because on the front, it tastes almost like a flavored coffee creamer. And then in the back, you get like almost espresso. It's really cool. It's like drinking a coffee that is also infused with scotch whiskey. Like I'm I'm super digging this right now. I'm going to give this an eight and a half on the flavor. Dude, let's go, man. Uh, for me, the finish, it, it finished with a little bit more power than the palette had. Um, some oak and almost like a, a cardamom kind of comes through, a little bit of spice there. But there's still that continuing honeyed sweetness um, that I got throughout the entire experience. I, I'm a big fan of this. I'll give it an 8 out of 10 on the finish. Yeah, it's much more grassy on the finish than anywhere else. It's not like I wouldn't call it like pine or anything like that. It just kind of has like a nice, soft earthiness to it that isn't overpowering. Like this would be a really good entry point into the world of scotch. I think it offers a lot of flavors that are present on many, many scotches, but just in a much more pleasant way. Man, I really like this, Brad. I know it's 80 proof, like, and it doesn't stack up to some of the more like high proof, you know, well-aged ones we've ever had. But for what it's trying to be, this is a darn good whiskey. I think I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the finish. 
Yeah, and then we jump into balance and value. Uh, as far as balance goes, I think that it's a it's a a little more impressive on the front end than the rest of the experience. But overall, for what you're getting at a you know eighty proof whiskey, I think it's a really nice balance. I'll mm-hmm. I'll give it a seven out of ten. When I look at the Speyside scotches that we've had so far, so we've had Aberlauer's, we've had at least one Macallan, we've had at least, I think we had four Glenlivets. So this is at least the fourth distillery we've tried in the Speyside region. I would really like to have more from this distillery and see if this flavor profile carries forward. I think this is a spectacularly well-balanced whiskey. It's definitely watered down. And I think if you're used to drinking something with a little more complexity or a little more of a punch, uh, this might be a disappointment in that way. But when it when it just comes to the balance of things, they handle this really, really well. I'll give it an eight out of ten. And when we get into value, Bob, your socks are going to be blown off, man, because this incredible whiskey can be purchased for twenty seven dollars in the state of Ohio. I like this a lot, man, especially at twenty seven bucks. <laughs> So yeah. the last kind of cheap scotch that we did, if I can call it that, was Cuddy Sark, which was like 15 bucks. Yeah. This is definitely better than Cuddy Sark. And I feel like sometimes we we hype up cheap whiskeys so much that people will like go out and buy them and then they'll be like, I'm trying it. I'm trying it. And it's like, well, dude, OK, like, please try it. But also remember, it's a $15 scotch. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, it's not going to be the best scotch you've ever had. And I'll say that about this. This is not going to be the best scotch you've ever had. It's $27. And it's $27 yep. for a reason. But it's a darn good $27. Mm-hmm. Know what you're getting into for sure. You're not going to be finding a gem, like a hidden gem that all the distilleries and people in the world just forgot about and somehow it got all the way marked down to $27 and it should be $2,000. No, it's a $27 scotch. But again, at that price point, I'm giving this an eight and a half out of 10 on value. Yeah, I'm at nine out of 10, Bob. I I think that this is an incredible value in the world of single malt scotches. Uh, And it brings me to a total of 39 out of 50. I'm at a 41 and a half out of 50, Brad. So that brings us to an 80.5 or a 40.25 out of 50. Hey, this this is in rarefied air getting over the 40 mark for us. It's a no brainer for me in terms of recommending that you buy a bottle of it. I probably wouldn't recommend trying it at the bar just because you're probably going to spend, I don't know, seven, eight dollars for a pour of this. And like it's just buy the bottle, dude, just plunk down 27 bucks. Yeah, this is a really nice, affordable single malt that would be I would I would just go on a limb and say this is probably the best introduction to the world of scotch that you can get. I'm, I won't go that far because I'm pretty sure I've said that exact thing about like five different scotches <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> well, I have it, Bob. So I'm going to say it now. <laughs> I really like this as a pairing with Baby Driver, too. Like, I mean, it's it's an import from Europe, like Edgar Wright, but it's got it's got the heart of the working man. You know what I mean? Like, it's a great, great, great twenty seven dollar scotch. I am super pumped to talk about the crowd pleasing whiskey and the crowd pleasing movie that we've got on hand this week. So what do you say we get back into talking about Baby Driver? Let's get to it. Today's sponsor is a little bit of a departure from our usual area of expertise, and man, oh man, I was blown away by their product once we received it. I am talking about Manscaped. 
Now, if you're like me at all, you've probably seen the Manscaped ads and kind of wondered to yourself, like, do I really need like some sort of specialty trimmer to take care of my downstairs business? And I've just got to be honest, I was absolutely wrong. Uh, their trimmer is called the Lawnmower 4.0, and I got to say, it is the Rolls Royce of trimmers. It's got a ceramic blade that reduces grooming mishaps, a wireless charging base, and an awesome flashlight that keeps things illuminated while you're working. And beyond all that, it's waterproof. This thing is really changing the game when it comes to below-the-belt hygiene. Now, this is just me talking about my experience, but this trimmer really is way beyond anything I've ever used to keep things neat and tidy. You can use our discount code FILMWHISKEY to get 20% off your order and free shipping. Head on over to manscaped.com and use code FILMWHISKEY to get 20% off free shipping, and you will be well on your way to hygiene heaven. All right, everybody, that was Spayburn 10, a phenomenal whiskey to be paired with a phenomenal movie, Bob. Absolutely, man. Hey, Brad, I don't know. Did we mention this? It's $27. It's 27 <laughs> bucks. Like, that's just You can buy a bottle value. of this and rent Baby Driver on, like, Amazon <laughs> for, for, like, less than $30. $30. Yeah. yeah. What a night. Yeah. That's a heck of a night, man, especially if you drink the entire bottle. Um, <laughs> please don't do if, that. Yeah, please don't. Even if please it's like you no. and a friend. That, that's a lot of whiskey. All right, Brad. It's time for me to uh, go to my weekly slaughter. Two facts and a falsehood. I am doing mm. horrifically bad. I, I, what, what am I at on the year now? This is episode 10. And I hit last week. I think you might be at four. I think I'm four and five because we reversed the call on the one week. So I have the opportunity to pull myself up to 500 this week. Yeah. You're coming back, man. You're doing great. All right. I'm proud of you. It's a battle. (laughs) So this segment is called Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is going to throw out three supposed facts at me, one of which he has completely made up. And it's my job to figure out which one of these is bogus. All right. Fact number one. Easy by the Commodores. Uh, Have you ever heard it, Bob? I sure have. Okay, just making sure. Uh, It was included in the film solely because director Edgar Wright asked Ansel Elgort in the casting process if there were any songs he, like, just absolutely knew by heart, and this was the song that he brought up. And Edgar loved it and said, it's going in the movie. Hmm. Fact number two. Edgar Wright refused to hire any English actors for the movie, uh, mostly due to due to a desire that he didn't want to be known as like an English director who always hires some English actors. Okay. Fact number three: Barbara Streisand, uh, she actually experienced tinnitus herself, uh, and it was the basis for a scene in the movie when Jamie Foxx's character had to say, "Do I look like I know?" an effing thing about Barbara effing Streisand. Uh, the crazy thing is that Streisand is actually close friends with Jamie Foxx in real life. Uh, Edgar Wright was worried about it, about how she would react to this, uh, not knowing that Fox was close friends with her. And Fox responded by saying, don't worry, Barbara's gangsta. <laughs> oh, man, that one was so long that I have to believe that it's true. Um, or maybe I'm writing a Norm McDonald joke for you. That's true. 
<laughs> All I could think about through most of that was that scene in Licorice Pizza where Brad Bradley Cooper's <laughs> talking <laughs> talking with the kid about how it's pronounced Streisand and not Streisand. Yep. <laughs> That's really funny. Oh man. Bradley Cooper responsible for my favorite movie line of last year and it's in Licorice Pizza when he like throws a trash can through a plate glass window and then immediately turns around and there's two pretty girls and he follows them and says, "Hey, do you girls like peanut butter sandwiches?" <laughs> my favorite line. <laughs> my favorite line in a movie. Oh man. All right. Um number 1. Remind me what number 1 was? Uh Easy by the Commodores oh, yeah, yeah. was okay. in the film because Ansel Elgort knew it by heart. And number 2 was that he refused to hire any English actors. I feel like 2 could be a really good trap and that there's like someone I'm not thinking of that's actually British. I think Lily James is British. Isn't she was in that movie yesterday? I'm going to say two is the falsehood and just bank on the fact that I think Lily James is British. Bob, you are 100% correct. Lily James is British. Yes. Look at you go, man. Man, I'm back to 500. You're absolutely killing it, Robert. So let's talk about Lily James. I think that's a great segue into talking about her. Her character in this movie is kind of a nothing character. And yet her character is everything to the movie. Like she is the mm-hmm. engine that makes this movie go again. Pardon the car pun. Ah. But she's just there to be like a uh, I don't know what the word is. A, the supportive girlfriend, like the overly supportive girlfriend, the girlfriend that makes you wonder, like, why are you still going through with this? This seems like a bad idea. Just walk away. Uh, and yet she's so charming and she has such great chemistry with Ansel Elgort that you buy every second of it. And it really is testimony to how great of an actress Lily James is. Yeah, I I think that one of the few things about the movie for me was like, I kept teetering on the edge of like, they do a really good job of trying to make this movie as realistic as possible, even though we all kind of know that like heists on this level don't really happen anymore. But like, you can suspend your belief with that. But the way she just falls for him and is like, yep, I'll wait five years for you to get out of prison. Like, I'm in love with you. Like, there's a little bit of suspension of belief there that requires a lot more faith. But Lily James just sells it. And I think that you're right in saying that she is kind of the grounding of this film. Because without her in in Baby's Life, like without her as a character... You 100% are going to see Baby fall into the life of crime. Mm. Like at the start of the movie, I I think one of my favorite parts of the film is that at the start of the movie, you see Baby like who is unwilling and like flinching about violence. Like it's not even like people dying. He just sees a woman being like shouted down to the ground with a gun in her face and you can see it's bothering him. And by the end of the film... He has turned into Jamie Foxx and he murders John Hamm and he's shooting people and he's just the way he sits in the car, the look on his face. You're like, oh, he has transformed into the thing he kept telling Joe and Lily he wouldn't turn into. And yet he ends up turning himself in. He ends up writing his life because of Lily James. And I I just love the way his character arc goes into the depths and yet is pulled back out 
by Deborah in the movie. Yeah. All right, man. We have, I think, two more main actors to talk about before we wrap this up today. And that is Jamie Foxx and John Hamm. Let's start with Jamie Foxx because we've already been talking about him a bit. Jamie Foxx is an interesting actor to me because, you know, he wins an Oscar for the movie Ray, in which he's fantastic. Uh, he's you, really, and you love the fact that he won that Oscar. There's nobody else that year that should have won it, right, Bob? No, nobody. Nobody that year. <laughs> <laughs> I really love him in Django Unchained, and I think that Tarantino really unlocked something in Jamie Foxx that's always been, always kind of gnawed at me a little bit. And I think that it's when Jamie Foxx is trying to be cool on screen, he comes across as a guy who's trying to be cool on screen. Like there are certain line readings that he does where it's like very obvious that he's like trying to flex a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when he's actually at his worst as an actor. Because the lines that he's not trying to, like, you know, put extra oomph into are the ones that work the best. He's he's very, very threatening in this movie. And he works as a, a villain so, so well, like 90 percent of the time. And I just think it's such a it's so funny to me because I just saw this clip the other day where Jamie Foxx was talking about his first day on set on Django and how Dude. he was trying to read the lines like a cool guy. And it's so funny, like the way he says it too. He's like, I walked in there and I was like, debepa, 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 debepa. <laughs> and he says yeah. it just like that. Yeah. And he says, Tarantino called cut and like took him into the trailer and just goes, uh, what the f was that? <laughs> and like, and, like <laughs> lights into him and tells him like, this guy is a slave. This guy is uneducated. He is not going to have that sense of swagger that you're trying to bring to this, at least not yet. And I think that's like the best advice you can give Jamie Foxx as an actor. He has it in him to be an all time great. And I think sometimes he's just like, I'm going to turn my swag on. And that's when he's at his worst as an actor. But here's the thing, though, this entire movie is asking him to be the epitome of swagger and like self-confidence. So like, how do you feel about him in this movie? Well, that's what I'm saying. I feel like there are times in the movie where he just embodies being a threatening villain so well. And then there's times where you can tell that he looked in the mirror and said, all right, be threatening. And then yeah. those are the moments where he's the least threatening to me. Hmm. That, that's interesting. At the very least, I think that Jamie Foxx had like in the, the hall of unexpected movie deaths. I think that his is hands down. One of the greatest. I like loved he, sitting in that theater with you guys because I think like all four of us collectively at the same time were just like, oh, shit. Yeah, like, yep. like, <laughs> it really caught us off guard, man. Yeah. I mean, it, it's up there for me with like The Departed, with, mm -hmm. you know, Leo getting shot. Like, yeah. there's just certain deaths in movies that are so they just take you by surprise. And the way he kills him is just poetic justice. And Absolutely. It's, I'm, I'm totally there for it, man. On the other side, you've got John Hamm, who is an actor who has been lauded for the last decade because of his portrayal of Don Draper in Mad Men. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like he's ever quite found his footing in movies 100 percent. Like he's really good in everything he does. But I've never walked away from a John Hamm movie performance like, wow, that should have been up for an Oscar. And I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's almost the same thing with that I just said about Jamie Foxx, but like almost magnified here where I really loved John Hamm's performance in the first two thirds of this movie. And then when he's supposed to just become like this mindless 
killer seeking vengeance at the end of the movie. I didn't buy any of that for a second. Like it, it still worked because the movie was so well made and, and the plot mechanics were already in motion. But I don't know if John Hamm is the guy that I would immediately think of as like, oh, what a cool bad guy in this movie. Well, the interesting thing is that they set him up as like uh, almost a bit of like an underworld father figure mm-hmm. to to Ansel. Like, like, yes, Doc, you know, played by Spacey, somewhat takes that role on, but he's so cold and distant that you never believe that. Whereas like John Hamm sits with him and listens to music with him. And, you know, his wife slash lover is like also like kind to him. And th- there's and then there's the juxtaposition of like, but you effed everything up and I'm going to murder you now. Mm-hmm. And I, for me, man, I thought Ham was terrifying at the end of the movie. I, I bought 100% his transformation into the bowl. Like, I, I love how at the start of the movie, this is a comment on Edgar Wright. It feels like when, when Baby is changing channels on the television and it goes through like Monsters, Inc., and a, a few other scenes, all of those scenes kind of come true in different aspects of the movie. And the one that comes true for John Hamm is he turns into the bull in the arena. Like mm-hmm. once he sees red, he's he's not turning back. Yep. And I, I thought he was terrifying at the end of the film. Well, I'm really glad that we came out in different places on both of those performances. I still think they work for the most part. But like if there is anything that kind of pulled me out of the film just a little bit, it was definitely those two actors. Brad, as we kind of wind down our Edgar Wright retrospective, do you have any final thoughts on Edgar Wright? I mean, how would you rank the three movies that we watched? Where does this how does this stack up, especially against Shaun of the Dead? Like what, what have you learned about Edgar Wright? I think that Edgar Wright has an incredible talent for movement. Like the the way he draws the audience forward through the story is so kinetic and like just raw and you you feel the movie just drawing you forward. Like honestly, the way you talk about Goodfellas is kind of the way I feel about Edgar Wright. Hmm. That there's an energy to the editing and the cinematography that just keeps me at the edge of my seat and keeps me interested. All right, Brad, it's almost time for final scores, but I want to throw a curveball in here. I think we should start a new segment on the Film and Whiskey podcast. New segment, and Robert. We'll do, it, we'll do it very quickly right before final scores every week. And this is going to be the first installment. And I'm going to call it this because we're a whiskey podcast. I'm going to call it I'll make it a double. And it's not going to be whiskey related. It's going to be it's going to be. Here's the premise. If you had to make this movie a double feature with something else, what would you pair it up with? Oh, like a like a drive in. Yeah. You know, going yeah. Out for the evening. Yeah. I will say so, one of the best uh, double features I've ever seen was um, uh, the first. Uh, they're not called minions what's the first oh the despicable me yeah it was despicable me paired with toy story 3 Mm. and i was like that was a heck of a because you know despicable me i know you don't care for it but like it's a pretty good animated film and then toy story 3 following it up was phenomenal uh fun fact when we were on vacation it rained one day so i took my son to the movies and he wanted to see minions the rise of Gru. yeah and i was like you know what fine and I enjoyed the hell out of that movie. So hey, there, there, go, there you go. <laughs> so that's Brad's vote. Baby Driver and Minions, The Rise of Gru. <laughs> the Here's Rise your double of feature. Gru. 
<laughs> no, I man. So what? So the question is, what movie would I pair with this if I was sitting down in an evening and watching a movie back to back? Yeah, like I'll, I'll give you mine. I think that if especially if you're trying to like theme them up together, I could go two ways. And uh, one would be to go the John Hamm route and take this movie and then a movie he did just a couple years later that was called Bad Times at the El Royale, which is one of my absolute favorite movies of the last five ish years. And it's like it's kind of like a Tarantino movie in that it has like different chapter titles, but all this crazy stuff takes place in one night at a motel and it ends up like everything's on fire at the end. It's 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 Drew Goddard, the guy that made the movie Cabin in the Woods doing Tarantino. And it is freaking great. I loved that movie. The other what, route what is it you, called, Bob? It's called Bad Times at the El Royale. OK, the other route that I think you could go is to take the supporting actress in this movie, Asa Gonzalez, and take a movie that she was just in this year that also involved going very fast in stolen vehicles. And that is Michael Bay's Ambulance. I think mm. you could pair this up and have an Asa Gonzalez you've double been, feature. You've been pulling for ambulance for a while now, Bob. You know what? Like five years ago, I think I would have been too snooty to admit that I enjoyed ambulance. And then this year has just been the year of awesome action movies, man. Like going back to the movie theater and seeing things like Top Gun and RRR and ambulance. And like I've just enjoyed the hell out of the movie going experience again this year. Can I tell you that I sat down, opened up Netflix, and I saw RRR. I watched 30 minutes of that movie and turned it off and was just like, what in the world just happened? But that was one of the coolest 30 minutes of movie I've ever watched in my life. Like the way they the way that they take about 10 to 15 minutes to introduce each of the two main characters. Those scenes are just wild. That movie's incredible. <laughs> All right, Brad. So what would your pick be? Man, I I've been I've been racking my brain as we've been talking about this. I think this is like I don't know where this came into my brain, but I think I'm going to suggest Man, what is it called? Uh, it's it's Adam Driver and Daniel Craig. I remember thinking that this looked like a cool movie because it was like the first non-Bond movie that, that yeah. Daniel Craig had uh, done. Are you talking about Logan Lucky? Yes, the NASCAR heist movie. <laughs> yeah, Steven is, Soderbergh. Is it, That's a great yeah, movie. Yeah, Channing dude. Tatum, I believe. Yep. Yeah, I I've I watched that once with some friends while I was in seminary, and it was quirky and funny. And very off the wall. And I, I think it'd be a good good pairing for Baby Driver. All right. There you have it. We've given you three suggestions for a double feature. And that's our first installment of I'll Make It a Double. Brad, it's time for our final scores. I, we both love this movie. I think it's nearly perfect. There's something in me that's keeping me from giving it a 10 out of 10. But I think I enjoy it like a 10 out of 10 level. Yeah. I think for now, I'm just going to say it's a nine and a half. But uh, subject to change. Asterisk yeah. on that one. I think I'll give it a nine out of 10. There's still some issues for me throughout the movie with pacing in the middle of the movie. Um, I, like, like we said, Spacey is like good, but not great. Uh, but there's not much wrong with this movie, Bob. And I would, I would 100% agree with you. I enjoy this movie. Like it's a 10. It's, it's just so good. Even like dude, when he pulls out the Michael Myers <laughs> masks, 
and they they have the conversation about which Michael Myers that he should have bought. It's just it's just witty and and priceless. All right. We'd love to know what you think of Baby Driver. Where does it rank for you among the three Edgar Wright films that we reviewed? Let us know what you think. You can find us on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump onto our Discord. Uh, Discord is a wonderful place where you can have a community of people on the internet that you get to choose to be a part of. They're, they're, it's not open to everybody. Only the people that that join are in. And we have great conversations about life, about movies, whiskey, uh, you know, all sorts of things. So you can find a link to get onto our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, we're starting a mini-series on the American filmmaker Wes Anderson. We're going to be looking at his second feature film, the one that really blew him up in terms of uh, public consciousness. That movie is called Rushmore. We'll be back with that one next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Next time.